Let us pray. Gracious Lord, like the apostles, we pray that you would increase our faith. Would you speak to us now from your word? Would you open our hearts to receive from you that we might know Jesus more this day? And it is in his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Who doesn't love a wedding? The blushing bride, the nervous groom, the parents all smiles in the first row, the best man trying to figure out which of the bridesmaids is still single. (laughs) They're just lovely times. Well, in Ruth chapter 4, we finally get the wedding we all wanted. Ruth and Boaz tie the knot. A child is born, and Ruth and Naomi are redeemed. A remarkable story comes to a nice, tidy finish. On the way there, we've seen many twists and turns, and chapter 4 is no exception. By looking at the characters and events found in Ruth 4, we learn about the cost of self-interest, the glory of sacrifice, and the God who works better things than anyone can imagine. And it turns out that even though chapter 4 ends the book of Ruth, it is hardly the end of the story. Let's dive right into our chapter. Once again, you can follow along in your study book if you have it or with the insert in your bulletin. Let's take a look at Ruth chapter 4. Our chapter begins with Boaz doing exactly what Naomi had expected at the end of chapter 3. He's getting straight to seeing Ruth and Naomi redeemed. He heads to the town gate because that is where major business transactions occur in the ancient world. And it just so happens that this other redeemer comes walking by. This is the shadowy, unknown figure that Boaz introduced in chapter 3. It turned out that He is a closer relative to Naomi than Boaz, and so he is the first right or responsibility of redemption. It's interesting to note that our translation today is actually being rather charitable to this Redeemer figure. We read that Boaz saw this man and says, come and sit, friend. Well, the word being translated friend there is not actually the Hebrew word for friend. The Hebrew word found here is actually two words, poloni almoni. Both of these words, yes, they were meant to rhyme. It's, they're having some fun here. Both of these words mean a certain one. Boaz is essentially saying, you over there, Mr. So-and-so, come and sit. It's actually kind of a dismissive way to refer to someone. It's like calling him what's-his-name. After learning more about his actions, it becomes perhaps a little more clear why Boaz might have that attitude. After Boaz lays out the situation, it seems as though Mr. So-and-so is more than willing to help. Boaz tells him that Naomi has land that she's looking to sell. It would be the responsibility of the Redeemer to care for Naomi from the production of the land until she dies. But at that point, the land would be the Redeemer's a great deal for him if he takes care of this widow until she dies he gets a nice little piece of land 
to add to his inheritance. He could even add it to the inheritance of his son to receive after he dies. Sure, it's a bit of a sacrifice taking care of this woman that you didn't really have any attachment to, but it's worth it in the end. So, of course, Mr. So-and-so agrees. Then Boaz throws him a nice, big, fat curveball. Turns out, there's another woman involved. And on top of that, she's from Moab. You may have heard that once or twice in the book. Ruth is from Moab. Mr. So-and-so hears that, and suddenly he is far less interested in this deal. See, here's the thing. If he redeems the land and takes Ruth, it would be his responsibility to father a child by her. And the child would inherit Naomi's land. This child would continue in the line of Elimelech. In other words, Mr. So-and-so would receive no direct benefit for having redeemed Naomi and Ruth. It would be a self-sacrificing act that would cost him more than it would benefit him, at least materially. That's actually kind of the point of the kinsman-redeemer law that we talked about last week. The heart behind it is self-sacrifice, to see others restored. But like so many other people, Mr. So-and-so has a particular question he asks when considering the best way forward. What's in it for me? People are almost hardwired to be concerned first and foremost by how we gain or don't in any given situation. We are a self-interested people. And Mr. So-and-so plays this to a T. An easy land grab? Sure, that sounds great. I'm in. Following the law of God to see someone else blessed at my expense? Well, yeah, no thanks. It's a funny thing, though. The law of kinsman-redeemer, at its heart, it's about taking care of those in need, but also continuing the line of the man who had died, continuing, in this case, Elimelech's line. The whole point is that in continuing his familial line, his name would not fall out of use. The name would not be forgotten. A child would continue the line in his name. And yet here is Mr. So-and-so, so desperate to preserve what's important to him, to safeguard his property and family line, that he ends up getting recorded in Scripture for all history with no name at all. As Ian Duguid points out, by trying to protect his future, Mr. So-and-so would remain forever nameless. The very thing he sought to avoid. And it happened because he approached the responsibility of redeeming Naomi and Ruth with that question ringing in his mind. What's in it for me? It's how many of us are taught to approach our lives. How can I benefit the most from any given situation? We ask questions like, will this be fulfilling for me? Will I enjoy it? Where will I benefit from it? Or what will it cost me? I sometimes wonder if this guy's remained nameless because it invites us to place our own names in the place of his. Think of times when we've approached situations out of self-interest. 
And ultimately, where has that gotten us? How has that attitude affected us? How many relationships are ruined because each person was only looking out for themselves? I've seen this approach in people's marriages. As they get married in more of a business contract than a covenant before God. Marriage is fine so long as each person's getting exactly what they need, but don't ask me to sacrifice. And it will only go so long as you meet my needs. The second you stop, we're done here. It's all about self-interest. Rather than what marriage was meant to be, a reflection of God's love for his people, reflecting the oneness of God as a man and woman are made one. To the glory of God and the mutual flourishing of the couple and society as a whole. Another example for you, we're in an election season right now. (laughs) I don't know if I've ever seen such an eye roll, Joan, wow. (laughs) No, that's all right, that's all right. I worked in politics, I've seen a lot of eye rolls. Virtually every pollster out there, of which I was one, will tell you the same thing. This might be shocking for you. Voters don't trust politicians. I don't know why we need another study to show that, but apparently we do. Voters don't trust politicians, and we don't because nobody believes politicians will actually help them. They're in it for themselves, right? Self-interest, and sure, there's plenty of examples we could point to, but self-interest has destroyed the trust between the people and those who seek to lead them, right? Self-interest has destroyed countless relationships between clergy and congregations, because of bad pastors who have sought their own interests rather than kingdom growth. There are countless examples that we could give, but the end is always the same. When we seek the path of self-interest, we end up alone, losing everything that was important to us, even the stuff that we were trying to protect. Again, Ian Duguid is helpful to us using Mr. So-and-so again. He clung to what he had, and in consequence lost something far greater, something he never even dreamed of. That's where self-interest leads. It is the cost of self-interest. As we focus on ourselves, we actually lose what it is to be human. We lose what it is to be part of something greater than ourselves. In our very creation, God created us to be in relationship with him and with one another. He created us to think and care for others. It's the very life that Jesus exemplified, willing to give everything so that others would be blessed. A self-interest approach to life leads us nowhere but being forgotten. another nameless member of the human race. In contrast to the self-interest approach, we have Boaz, the wonderful example of the glory of sacrifice. You know, something that struck me when reading about Boaz, I've often wondered that why at the end of chapter 3, Boaz didn't just redeem Ruth and Naomi. Why worry about Mr. So-and-so at all? 
You seem to have no interest in it. It just seems like inviting an opportunity for everything to go wrong, an unnecessary step. After all, what if this mysterious other redeemer isn't a good guy? What if he treats Naomi and Ruth terribly or he doesn't follow through on the responsibility that he has in the way that he's supposed to? They're all fair questions to ask of Boaz, but they all have the same answer. Boaz is a man who is willing to sacrifice. And genuine sacrifice is a sign of integrity. Boaz, if he is anything, is a man of integrity. He's not interested in doing things the fastest way or the easiest way. No, he wants to do things the right way. He's saying, I'm going to make sure that Ruth and Naomi are redeemed, but we're not going to leave the door open for any accusation of wrongdoing or corner cutting. He is a living, breathing example of what it means to appear and be above reproach. That's not the typical way of doing things. People often want to pay lip service to the idea of integrity, but when the rubber meets the road and acting with integrity could cost us something, well, let's just pump the brakes a little bit here. What's so wrong with cutting corners a little bit? What's so wrong with ignoring this one commandment or this one rule? I mean, the end outcome will will be the same either way, right? Well, what's so wrong with it is that that's not how God has called his people to live, and that's not how he empowers his people to live. As we've seen in our series, Boaz is a man who is God at the center of his life. He has a daily relationship with his Father in heaven, and because of that, Boaz wants to live how God desires him to live. That means being a man of integrity, even when it means risking the outcome you would have preferred. Cutting corners and just getting on with marrying Ruth might have been the Hollywood ending that we all wanted. But that would not be the God-honoring path. The God-honoring path is the path of integrity, and integrity says, I'm going to do the right thing, even though it's the hard thing. Integrity says, I'm going to show costly love. Integrity says, I'm going to follow the way that God wants me to live, even though it doesn't make sense to the world, even though it might seem like, quote unquote, not the logical way. I'm going to seek first the kingdom of God and trust his promise to add all these things as is best for me and to his glory. And the truth is, there is genuine sacrifice being made on Boaz's part. Mr. So-and-so was unwilling to redeem Ruth because it would have cost him part of his inheritance and his social standing. After all, in Israelite society, marrying a Moabite was not exactly a recipe for climbing the social ladder. But Boaz doesn't care about that. He would rather risk all of it and sacrifice his place in society to see God's work and God's will be done. He cared more about the glory of God than the social standing of Boaz. One commentator summarized Boaz's heart this way. In terms of the financial and social equations, it was always likely to be a losing prospect for him to marry a Moabitess. Entering a relationship so that she could have a son to inherit the property he had just put good money on could never make good fiscal sense. 
But then the Lord's wisdom operates on a different kind of calculus from the wisdom of the world. Boaz was more concerned with God's ability to give him a great name than he was about any attempts to preserve his own reputation. How might relationships be changed in our society if that was the posture we had? How might relationships be changed in our own church, in our families, in our marriages? How many marriages would be restored again? How many families that have not spoken to each other in years would be brought back together if we sought the God-honoring path? Maybe we could even trust politicians again. (laughs) Miracles are possible, people. Have faith. People wonder, how could that actually be? Self-interest is so ingrained in our society and who we are, and seemingly the whole world. How could we possibly live lives of sacrifice and integrity rather than self-interest? Well, Boaz points us in that direction, too. We've said over and over again that Boaz is a worthy man, a man who desires to fulfill the spirit of God's law, not just the letter of God's law, going above and beyond the norm. That only happens when a heart has been shaped by God. It's not something we are going to do apart from God. And if you want evidence of that, you got Mr. So-and-so as Exhibit A right here. And if you need more than that, most of Naomi's actions throughout the book. In knowing God and being in relationship with God, Boaz trusts that God will work for his glory and the benefit of Ruth, Boaz, and Naomi because he knows that God is one who acts in the world. Remember, one of the big themes of this book is the providence of God. God working behind the scenes, often without us noticing at all, to see his will be done. And that final point is brought out beautifully by the end of our book. The author makes it clear that God has given Obed, a son, as a gift to Naomi and Ruth and Boaz. We're given this wonderful picture of Naomi's affection as she holds Obed and cares for him as his nurse. And the women of Bethlehem gather around and praise the Lord the giver of life, for restoring life to Naomi. It's a wonderful picture. It'd be a wonderful picture if, if the book just ended there. We could all leave happy. But it is a mere glimpse of what God was doing. The genealogy at the end of our book, everybody's favorite part of scripture, genealogies, there is a point to them. The end of the book tells us that Obed would become the grandfather of the great king of Israel, David. What an end that would be. That feels like the cherry on top of the Sunday, right? Naomi, Ruth, Boaz, everything works out well for them. And because the line continued, King David. That's amazing. Well, as Christians... Those of us who are Christian, if we have read the Gospel of Matthew, we should know that that is not the end at all. 
generations later from the line of David, the line of Ruth, the Moabitess, came Jesus. The son who would redeem not just a couple widows in Bethlehem, but all who by his grace have faith in him. A couple things to take away from that remarkable act of God. First, the truth is that God can work greater things than any of us can ever begin to imagine. You think for a moment that when Naomi hatched her terrible plan in chapter 3, that she had any idea that this is what God would do with it? Kind of hard to call it a terrible plan after this, isn't it? It was a terrible plan, but worked out in the end. Can you imagine that she sat there that night thinking that she would be in the line of the Savior of the world who was to come? We so do like to limit God, don't we? That's what he did in this woman's life. And yet we don't believe God can act in our lives. We don't believe that he can provide what we need to get through the day. And yet here he is working in history, not to redeem two women, but the entire world. The story of Ruth shows us that God works through an unworthy people in a situation that never should have happened to do something no one could have predicted. If we go right back to the beginning of the story, Elimelech never should have gone to Moab. He sinned in doing so. Malin should have never married a Moabite woman. He sinned in doing so. And by any human standard, Ruth should have turned around and walked back to her parents' Place. It made no sense for her to stay with Naomi, and yet it just so happens that God was at work the entire time. That doesn't mean that he was pleased or approved of Elimelech and Malin's sin. Well, certainly wouldn't have. It's the truth that our Heavenly Father is the God who redeems even our sinful actions so that his will might be done. And he can redeem all of us. Even faithful Ruth and righteous Boaz were not worthy of what God would do for them. Yet in his grace, he acted on their behalf. It's what our God does. It's how he shows his love for us. Don't let go of that. Don't forget that. And moments when you look back on your life and you see moments of old sin and you lament it. Don't let the enemy make you despair of that. Rather, praise God that he can redeem even that, that he redeems all us sinners through faith in Christ. Don't write yourself off as being beyond redemption and don't write others off either. It'd be easy to toss Naomi aside as the bitter-hearted one or Elimelech as the terrible sinner, yet God used even them. He can use who he wants. And he can redeem whoever he wants. Last thing to keep in mind. Boaz, Ruth, Naomi, their stories end with this great blessing. A new marriage, a son, two women redeemed, a father's line continues. Who could ask for more? But as we've seen, much, much more happens. But here's the thing. The greatest blessings that come out of this do not happen in any of their lifetimes. They did not live to see David made king. They did not live to see, this, see the Savior of the world born in a manger in the very town that they lived in. 
And they did not live to see that Savior die on a cross and rise again for their redemption. All those greater blessings of God happened a long time after they died. Here's the point. Sometimes what God is doing in and through us is not made apparent or become plain to us in our lifetimes. We don't always get to see the greater blessing. We don't know how God might use our actions or our words to bless people who won't come for generations. That actually gives me hope. Hope that even in those moments of my hurts, that I might not get to see what God was doing in those moments, that I can still trust that he was at work. That when something is happening in my life, I can believe that even if I don't know what it is, God is working something greater and bigger than I could ever imagine. Something greater than me. It gives me hope that even though the capital C and small C church is not all she should be, generations to come will hear the gospel because faithful churches, even small ones in Windsor, Ontario, still preach Christ crucified and the faith as it was fully given. It gives me hope that the God who used a band of unworthy nobodies in a backwater town in Israel is the same God who used a bunch of fishermen to preach the good news of Jesus that changed the entire world. He's the same God who can work in and through each one of us to see those we know and those we will never meet in this lifetime come to redemption in Christ. It's part of why the church is here. To see generation after generation after generation come to faith, to hear the good news that Jesus died for them long after we're gone. It's the greater blessing that we might not get to experience in this lifetime, that we can trust that God is at work doing it. God does bigger things than we can imagine, friends, and he will continue to do amazing things through his people. In the end, the story of Ruth is a wonderful story. That actually really isn't the story of Ruth at all. It's the story of the God who works behind the scenes to graciously restore and redeem his people. He uses righteous Boaz and faithful Ruth and even bitter Naomi to see his greater will be done. So it is my prayer that we would look for what the Lord is doing in our church and in our lives. For he is at work. And in all things, we would stop and praise the Lord for how he works, both behind the scenes and center stage, for our redemption and for continuing to do greater things than any of us could ever ask for or imagine. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the book of Ruth. We thank you for your word to us. We thank you for Ruth, Naomi, Boaz, even Mr. So-and-so. We thank you that... You're at work all the time. You're at work in that story. You're at work in ours. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see how you are moving in our lives and in our church. That you would open our hearts to praise you for all that you do, even when it's hard. 
For we know, Lord, that you work all things together for the good of those that you love, who you have called for your purpose. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.